Father, bless these words to our hearts in Jesus' name. Turn in your Bibles, please, to Psalm 85. In verse 10, Mercy and truth have met together, righteousness and peace have kissed each other. This is a popular passage, but it's perhaps the most popular passage that is often vague to people. What exactly does that even mean? That mercy and truth have met together and righteousness and peace have kissed each other. This is a very powerful statement that it's making. The phrase met together is pagash in the original language. And it means to encounter or to touch. When it says righteousness and peace have kissed, kiss is neshak. And it does mean to kiss, but it's referring to a union through submission. By the way, as an aside to whoever is young and listening to this online, if you are interested in a young man or a young lady, you don't start getting physical with them. That's 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 1. You don't even touch them. That word touch refers to a carnal touch. It doesn't mean you don't shake their hand. It means you don't get carnal in your contact with them. People who start to kiss prior to marriage, they don't realize it. But they are submitting their soul to the other person. That is a dangerous place to be. That's why it often leads to far more than kissing. People who get physical, sexual in their premarital relationships are changing their physiology. And they are imprinting themselves on that other person. That's why when there's premarital sexual activity, Often there is not post-marital sexual activity nearly to that level. Because they have destroyed their capacity, it's not just a question of what is right before God, although it is a question of that also. Your biology has changed. So if you're getting physical before marriage, You are changing your biology. You are changing your biochemistry and your biochemistry is telling you that individual is your spouse. And then you break up with them and get another person and now that individual is your spouse. And by the time you're married, your biochemistry and the imprinting that has taken place psychologically as a result of that biochemistry is so messed up that having a healthy relationship with a spouse is very difficult to do. Now, God can and does correct that. But quite frankly, even in the case of many Christians, that doesn't get corrected. And the reason is because they never completely mix faith with what they hear. And the provision for the Correction, the provision for the healing is never internalized. And so the healing never takes place. Young people, if you are interested in somebody, wait till you marry them. Don't marry them if you don't share their call. 
I remember years ago, this is not the message, this is just what the Holy Spirit is bringing. Years ago, I asked a group of young people who were in our church at the time, what is it that would take you out of your call? Identify it. I say the same thing to everybody. What is it that would take you out of your call? Identify it. The reason why you want to identify it is because Satan has already identified it. He studies you carefully. And if something can take you out of your call, you can bet that he's going to bring it. Young people, don't get physical with the opposite sex. Nowadays, you have to say even your own sex. Don't even go there. But don't get physical with the opposite sex. You don't know what you're doing. Because it's far more than your libido, which is controlled by chemistry. That's what it's about. Young people, no touch love. Sit right there. No touch love. Until you are married. And there are some versions, the more modern versions, they say you don't have sex in 1 Corinthians 7.1 until you're... No, it says you do not touch with a carnal touch. That's the original language. You do not touch with a carnal touch. And everybody knows what a carnal touch is. I don't need to define that one. Everybody knows what a carnal touch is. You don't kiss. You don't sleep together. You don't make out. You don't pet. None of that stuff. Why? You need to protect your soul. What do you want to bring into your marriage anyway? Hi dear, you're the fifth one. Oh, that's special. So what do you want to bring into your relationship anyway? Why are young people unfaithful to their spouse just because they don't know who their spouse is yet? You think you got one, right? Then why be unfaithful to them? I could never figure that one out. Anyway, let's go on. Mercy and truth have met together. Mercy and truth have encountered each other. Now, mercy is something that God gives on a horizontal level. Truth is something that is on a vertical level. So when God is saying that mercy and truth have met together, what he is giving us a picture of is the cross. The cross introduces two things. It introduces truth and it introduces measure. Truth is from the vertical perspective. Mercy is the horizontal perspective of it. The great characteristic of Christ is the cross. That's what makes him the Savior. Who Christ is, is all about the cross. So when he's telling us that the cross is made of mercy and truth, and that is really what this is saying, the cross is made of mercy and truth, it is telling us, this is where I meet you. Now, in 2 Corinthians 2.15 and 16, we become one person with Christ at the cross. So, the way that we become one person with Christ is through mercy and truth. That's where we meet Him. That's where our oneness is. That's where we become the one new man. 
It's in mercy and it's in truth. Now, in John 14 and verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. In John 17, 17, his word is truth. In John 1, 14, the word became flesh. So, when we are talking about truth, we are talking about Christ. We're talking about the mind of God. It's the very thing that sets us apart to him is to have his mind. Now, sometimes as believers, we try to live a life for Christ. People are sincere. They love God. They sincerely desire him. They try to live a life for Christ. But there's really only one way that's possible, and that's to be sanctified, set apart, by the Word of God. How does that work? Well, if I'm set apart by the Word of God, the Word of God is where faith comes from in Romans 10.17. And so, if I'm set apart from the Word of God, I'm set apart from faith. What does it mean that I'm set apart from faith, and why does it come by the Word of God? Because the Word of God, as I take it into my frame of reference, remember when it says the heart, it's speaking of the frame of reference. When that Word becomes my frame of reference, it starts to control the way that I think. The frame of reference is my standard for everything. Whatever your frame of reference is, that will define everything else for you. It's like a little kid. Mom says, don't touch the iron when it's hot. And then the little kid's frame of reference says, you don't touch irons when they are hot. And if a little kid goes against mom's definition and touches the iron when it's hot, that little kid will very quickly learn that mom was right. You don't touch the iron when it's hot. And it becomes that kid's frame of reference. And so now, every time that kid sees an iron, they will not touch it when it's hot. It's the frame of reference. I remember when I was a kid, I was about six years old. We were living in an apartment complex in Ohio. And my mom told me, if anybody offers you anything, like candy or something, get away from them. Don't take it, get away from them. And I was riding my bike one day, and these kids, they looked like these big kids to me. I don't know, they were probably 10 or 12 They say, hey, little boy, you want some candy? I never pedaled harder in my life than I did on that day. I got out of there so fast, I didn't talk to them, nothing. Why? Frame of reference. Mom defined my frame of reference. The Word of God defines our frame of reference. When I have the Word of God as my frame of reference, then I learn how to think with Christ because His Word, His thoughts are my frame of reference. I don't even have to quote scriptures in my mind. Simply my thoughts will be established in the word of God and whatever thought I have as a result of that being my frame of reference will be according to the word of God. That's faith. Now I know Hebrews 11.1 1 says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of realities unseen. I get that. But where does that come from? It comes from the right frame of reference. If I have the right frame of reference, which is the word of God, then I'll have the right thinking. 
If I'm thinking with God, I'm thinking in faith. So, if I want to think in truth, I think according to the word of God. If I want to live by faith in John 1.17, I think according to the word of God. If I want to grow, I grow according to the word of God. Everything that I have, everything that I am, everything that a person has between them and God is the word of God. Now, in John 16.13, the spirit of truth guides us in all truth. God gives us the Holy Spirit to orient us correctly in our vertical relationship to Him. If I have that correct orientation, as He's guiding me in the Word of God, He orients me correctly to the mind of Christ, everything else falls into place. Why do people have problems? Because they're not thinking correctly. I'm not saying why do people have circumstances. I said why do they have problems. I can have a difficult circumstance but think correctly and my circumstance is not a problem even though it's something I may have to deal with. It's not something that's going to trip me up. It's not something that's going to take me out from my relationship to God. It's not something that's going to greatly affect my life. It's not something that's going to overwhelm me because I'm thinking with the Word of God. If it's a circumstance at your job or with your family or with your health or whatever it is, if I'm thinking with the Word of God, I'm thinking in truth. That's the vertical portion of mercy and truth. In John 18.37, Jesus said, Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Where does the truth come from? It comes from his voice. In Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, the Spirit of God speaks to the messengers to the churches. The word is not angels in the original language. It's agalos. It's actually speaking of messengers, pastor teachers. The Spirit of God speaks to the pastor teacher. He delivers the doctrine. The doctrine then takes residence in your frame of reference and the Holy Spirit shows you how to apply it then you've got something going on. When that takes place, it becomes government. In Romans 1.25, there are those people who exchange the truth of God for a lie. Now that lie may be anything. Today we see this all the time. People are exchanging the truth of God for a lie, so much so that they can't even tell you if they're a boy or a girl. Are you a man or a woman? I don't know, the judge says. I'm not a biologist, yet she's a mother. How does she not figure out if she's a man or a woman? You know what? This nine-year-old little girl has no questions whether she's a boy or a girl. She's a girl and she knows it. Doesn't even occur to her that there could be any other thing going on. Why? Because she has a little bit of sense as a child, far more sense than a lot of people in the world. You get these politicians and these people who are in charge of education trying to tell little boys they're girls and little girls they're boys. Those people are idiots. 
Those kids have far more sense than they do. But this is the thing. This is what happens when there's a misalignment to truth. And they exchange the truth of God for a lie. And they start to live in the lie. And they start to worship the creature rather than the creator. It doesn't have to be idolatry like we think of as idolatry. Anything that is not the will of God, the plan of God, that's idolatry. I desire something outside what God desires for me. That's idolatry. If I'm trying to redefine things and I'm adamant that this is how my life is going to work, that's idolatry. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. Why? Because they confuse the vertical with the horizontal. A mistake that can very easily be made is that I separate that which is vertical from that which is horizontal. And truth no longer becomes a question of the word. Truth becomes a question of circumstances, comfort, emotions. I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Nobody should have their feelings hurt. Really? Where's that written? I'm not promoting going around being unkind, but where is that written? Where in the Bible are feelings premier for anything? Lucifer became Satan because of feelings. Where is that written? By the way, that's in Ezekiel 28. Where is that written that feelings are any kind of a standard for anything? Nobody should have their feelings hurt. Nobody should feel like a failure. Well, you know what? If you're a failure, it might be helpful to feel like a failure sometimes. Why does God convict? To get us right. Why does God say, no, that's wrong, so that we'll be right? Why does God say, that's sin, so that we won't sin? Sometimes we need to know that we made a mistake. Sometimes we need to know that this isn't where it's at. Well, if I say I'm going to discount what God says, I'm going to discount the truth, but I will keep the horizontal in place, then not only have I separated the cross from itself, I've started to live in idolatry. Be careful about the horizontal. It's vitally important, but it must stay in its proper place. Social gospel was about people not feeling bad, people not having difficulty. And it seems right to people. Well, isn't that loving people? Isn't that how we love? We don't want them to be hurt. We don't want them to have difficulty. We want them to have everything they need. And where does all that come from? Well, we have to provide it for them. You see, there's the mistake. You can't provide anything. God provides everything. Well, we can provide them money and services and what have you. Okay, and where's that going to take them? That'll do nothing. It might fill their belly for a day, but their soul is still empty. 
God takes care of the person, body and soul. Now, if you are out there with a soup kitchen, for example, that's terrific. Are you preaching the gospel as you're dishing out the dinners? If you are, more power to you, you're doing it right. Are you dishing out the dinners but refusing to preach the gospel so you don't turn anybody away? Well, now you're a social program. But it's not truth. I remember one time I was talking to somebody, they were on a so-called missions trip, which isn't actually missions, it's kindness, but it's not missions to fix somebody's roof out in the western part of the state. They called it their missions trip. But the pastor of that church said to those kids who were on this, make sure you don't preach the gospel to these people. Couldn't believe that. Make sure you don't tell them about Christ. You don't want them feeling uncomfortable as you're fixing their roof. Well, it's kind to fix their roof so they'll be dry and go to hell. A lot of good that did. But you see, that's what happens when the vertical and the horizontal are separated. Mercy and truth, mercy and truth meet together. Mercy apart from truth has no life in it. Truth apart from mercy has no manifestation. The word of God says in Ephesians 4.24, Put on the new man which is created according to God in truth, righteousness, and holiness. By the way, holiness is not talking about perfection or sinlessness. Our holiness and the holiness that is of God are two different things. Our holiness comes from Him. But it's not like the angelic holiness. Sometimes people confuse this. If I'm holy, I'm not doing anything wrong. Good luck with that. You have an old sin nature. The angelic standard in Revelation 4.8 is holiness. Our standard is grace. So for us, holiness becomes something else. God is holy and God is love. What does it mean? That holiness in a human life is the love of God being worked out. If I have the love of God in my life and I live in the love of God, then holiness will be the byproduct. I can't strive for holiness. But I do receive love. And that love will become my holiness. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Now, sometimes people like to say in Ephesians 4.15, speak the truth in love. And then they will tell you all that there is wrong. Well, I have to tell you the truth in love. And here's my laundry list of criticisms and complaints about you. You know what? That's not truth and that's not love. Love thinks no evil. 1 Corinthians 13.5 If you have this laundry list and calling it truth and love, that's not truth, it's not love, that's deception. As the old sin nature trying to find a way to appease itself, 
as it tries to control the situation or the person or what have you. It's not truth and it's not love. Truth is that which comes from God. By the way, truth is not fact. This blows people's minds sometimes. Truth and fact are two different things. Facts are circumstantial and they are interpretations of human reasoning of the data in your environment. Alright, fact is, I'm a wicked sinner. Truth is, I have no sin in me. How does that work? Blood of the Lamb. Truth is that which God proclaims. Fact is that which I can interpret from external circumstances. Any scientist will tell you, scientific facts change every four years. And so what we thought was a fact may not be a fact tomorrow. Any police detective will tell you what people are telling you are the facts may not be the facts. Just because they're an eyewitness to this. I used to work years ago with a retired police detective when I worked at a hospital. He was the head of security. He was a homicide detective for 25 years. He said he never believed eyewitnesses because they wouldn't give him the right story. It's not that they were dishonest. It's not that they were trying to deceive. They just didn't know what went on. Because an eyewitness is going to be corrupted, for lack of a better word, in their testimony by their subconscious mind and their unconscious mind. It's that study that took place in Manhattan. They staged a mugging in front of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, made sure they had a lot of witnesses, and then researchers dressed as police officers came to interview the eyewitnesses. Every single eyewitness would have sworn in court they were telling the truth, but they gave a totally different testimony. They couldn't even agree on the race, on the gender, they couldn't agree on the clothes, they couldn't agree on anything. And these were eyewitnesses. Why? The unconscious mind accounts for about 80% of your thinking. And that you have no control over whatsoever. That secretary in the study in Boston, there's a study in Boston. They wanted to see how the unconscious mind works. So they hired some people. They were actually not going to help. They told them they were going to help with the research. They were actually the subjects of the research. They told them to be at a certain time in a certain building in a certain room. Each one came in at their appropriate time and they timed it just perfectly. They had a researcher posed as a secretary coming out of a different room, walks by them holding a cup of coffee and some papers. As she's passing by them, she drops her papers. She asked the person who's coming in if they could hold her cup of coffee for her. She smiles at them and she's very polite. Same scripted encounter every time. She picks up her papers, gives them a smile, says thank you very much, and goes her way. When the subject gets to the room, they want to know about the secretary. The researchers do. And they ask the subject about the secretary. Every single one of them gave the same type of responses. There was one variable. The secretary followed a script. The variable was the temperature of the coffee. Some people she gave a warm cup of coffee. Some people she gave a cold cup of coffee. Can you hold this for me, please? 
The people who held a warm cup of coffee thought she was friendly, pleasant, somebody they would want to be friends with. The people who held a cold cup of coffee said she was aloof, unfriendly, rude. They would not want to see her again. The difference was in the coffee. That's the unconscious mind. We don't go out of what God gives because we have no reality in it. Speak the truth in love. How am I going to possibly do that? Second Corinthians 5.16 says, Know no man after the flesh, but it doesn't say you don't know their flesh. It says you don't know them sourced in your own flesh. If you're thinking you're not going to know any man after their flesh, you're going to be judging everybody. But that's not what it's saying. Look at the original language. You don't know them as your own old sin nature being the source for knowledge. You don't live in the flesh as you interact with people, you could say. Why? Because it's not truth. You may have plenty of facts, but it's not truth. You see, mercy is the horizontal component of truth. We deal with each other according to mercy. Because God deals with us according to mercy. How am I to figure anything out about somebody's life? I can't. There's no possible way. Even if they tell me all the details, I don't know their genetics. I don't know their full history. I don't know their psychological makeup. How am I possibly going to go anywhere unless I go to mercy? Mercy is the horizontal component of truth. Mercy is always based in the blood of Christ. Alright, let's define mercy. Pastor Stevens defined it well. It's when God does not give you what you deserve. Therein is mercy. When God does not give you what you deserve. Another practical word for mercy is patience. Patience is when you don't give somebody what they deserve. Mercy and patience are simply the source and the expression. It's always based in the blood of Christ. What if somebody does something wrong to you? What do you do then? Well, they did this. Maybe they did. But maybe that's just the perception of what they did. And the reality is different. You see, in our own lives, perception and reality, they're not really separable and they're not discernible. So I may think that somebody did something toward me, but actually maybe they didn't. It was just my perception. I may think, oh, this person was very rude toward me, but maybe that's my perception. Maybe that's not their heart. Maybe that wasn't even their words. I don't know. So all I can do is function in mercy. I apply the blood. Okay, let's say I'm right. They transgressed against me. What's the solution? The blood of the lamb. 
The blood of the Lamb is the solution. In every situation, the blood of the Lamb is the solution. Let's say I'm wrong. And they didn't, but that's my perception. What's the solution? Still the blood of the Lamb. Because if I was right, it would be the blood of the Lamb. If I'm wrong, it's the blood of the Lamb. So do I hold things against people? No, the blood of the Lamb. What does it mean to forgive? To forgive is simply to apply the blood of the Lamb. You see, here's the thing, and this is why it works, and this is why people sometimes have problems with it. They don't understand the blood of the Lamb. Revelation 1.5 says that the blood of the Lamb cleanses us from all sin. Each and every. The blood of the Lamb cleanses us from all sin. Psalm 103.12 says that sin is removed as far as the east is from the west. What removes the sin? The blood of the Lamb. What does it mean that it's as far as the east is from the west? Can you find my sin somewhere in California? Well, really, if you think about it, the east is from the west. It talks about the universe. Now let's bring in a little physics that the Bible does speak of God in places like Second Peter 3.8. Einstein showed us that space and time are the same thing. That's why scientists call it space-time. They don't just call it space anymore. They call it space-time. Because space and time are the same thing. If you have space, you have time. If you have time, you have space. Time is really quite different than what people think it is. Our experience is one moment after another but her experience is nothing more than an ant walking across a table. When the blood of the Lamb removes sin from space as far as the east is from the west, it's not talking about geography. It's talking about time. Why did Jesus say to those people who were lost in Matthew seven twenty-one to 23 Depart from me, I never knew you. You workers of iniquity. When did he know them? Never. What is the word never? It is a time reference. I never, not once, not ever, nowhere in time did I know you. Why not? Well, because the blood of the Lamb removes sin. Whatsoever is not of faith, in Romans 14.23, is sin. So the blood of the Lamb removes everything that is not of faith from time. Hence, someone who never exercised faith toward Christ would never have been known by Christ because their entire life was sin, by definition. And the blood of the Lamb removes sin. Why do the unsaved have their name removed from the book of life? The blood of the Lamb. Why is salvation only by faith? Because that's what the blood of the Lamb does not remove. That's what's not sin. It's in your Bible. And so when I exercise mercy, 
not only am I exercising that which is according to God, not only am I exercising truth on a vertical level, that's the only way I can have a relationship with somebody and not have it be sin. Because mercy is always based in the blood. What is forgiveness? I agree with the blood of the Lamb. Whatever somebody did that might offend me or what have you, well, the blood of the Lamb removes all sin. The transgression is gone. I don't have to worry about things that are gone. I'm not saying that we don't apologize and things like that. That has to do more with walking together and agreeing. But I am saying that the sin is gone. And all that I have to do in order to forgive, all that I have to do in order to live in mercy is believe what the blood did. When the Word of God says in Revelation 13.8 that the Lamb was slain from the foundation of the world, it doesn't mean at this point in time, time didn't exist yet. In the original language, it means that the slain lamb was the laying down of the structural foundation for the world, cosmos, universe. This was understood in Abraham's day. I don't know why people don't understand it today. But Genesis 2.7 shows us very clearly in the original language when it says, Out of the dust of the ground God created the man, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living soul. Ground and man are the same word. And that word means to show blood. It means that that man and the ground were created for the same purpose. That God's love be revealed and the greatest manifestation of the love of God was when Christ shed his blood on the cross. That's it. And everything was built on that. Well, if the blood is the structural foundation for everything, what is sin? Where does it remain? It appears in time, but time is made out of the blood as part of its structure. What is it? By the way, time is not moments. Time is fabric. See, if I'm boggling your mind, I should be, unless you understand Einstein a little bit. But it's not that hard. God told us that he spread out the universe like a drape. The blood of the Lamb is the foundation of mercy. Therefore, if I'm to function in truth, I must function in mercy. Hence, Mercy and truth met together. Righteousness and peace kissed each other. Now the word of God says in Isaiah 1.9 that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. We think of peace as tranquility and tranquility can be produced but that's not really what it's talking about. It's not saying he is the Prince of a feeling of tranquility. Peace is one of the major characteristics of the kingdom of God. He's a prince of peace. There's people who doctors have brought back, resuscitated, who've died, 
And some of them say that the first thing they realized is they were in the presence of complete peace. But peace was not a feeling. Peace was external. Peace is the kingdom of God. Righteousness, well Romans 1.17 tells us that our righteousness is manifested from faith to faith that the just shall live by faith. What does that mean? And how is that peace? It's not talking about a condition. It's not talking about a feeling. It's talking about a government. When the word of God becomes my frame of reference and I start to think with this, this is where I get my righteousness. Romans 3.22 says that our faith is our righteousness. So in order to have righteousness, I live by faith. In order to live by faith, I must live by the word of God. Jesus said in Matthew 4.4, by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I live in faith obedience to God. Not out of striving, but because it's truth. I think with the truth, I'm living in faith. I apply the truth. In other words, my decisions are based on my thoughts. And when my thoughts are founded in the truth, my decisions are decisions of truth. That's faith obedience. That's how we become practically governed by the Word of God. This is a throne of grace. By the way, grace is not just unmerited favor, although that is one of its three aspects. Grace is three-dimensional, not one-dimensional. People sometimes don't trust grace because they don't know what grace is. They say to themselves, unmerited favor, well, doesn't that mean you can sin? You don't know grace. Hebrews 4.16 tells us that grace is a government. Ephesians 2.7 tells us that grace is the riches of God's kindness. So yeah, we have the Ephesians 2.8. Unmerited favor is the divine gift of God. But we also have the kindness of God in verse 7 in the Hebrews 4.16 throne of grace. God's seat of government. How do I enter that? The throne of grace, you could paraphrase it and say it's the throne of peace. Well, I take in the word of God and let it become my frame of reference. As it's the frame of reference, it regulates my thinking. My thinking regulates my decisions. Now I have a government. God's government in my life comes through submission to His Word. And when that's present, I go from faith to faith. And therein is the righteousness of God manifested in us. The just live by faith. The just live by a government that comes 
through the word of God. Therein is the cross, folks. Mercy and truth. I'm rightly related vertically. And then I manifest my relationship horizontally. And the way that I do it is by righteousness and peace. Those two become united through submission. And the manifestation is a relationship with God and God being revealed in my life. Amen? If you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior and you don't know where you're going to go when you die, simply pray, Dear Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I receive you as my Savior. Thank you for loving me so much that you died for me so I can have eternal life with you. Amen.